Um, I appreciate, listen, I put entirely too much time into that skill. So I appreciate your appreciation of it. Okay, thank you. Um, it's the first people who ever got excited about that. So, um, uh, I am here tonight uh, to redeem myself, or at least hopefully. I mean, I know I pretty much already redeemed everything about my life with that cool pillow trick I just did, but I am specifically referring to a blunder I made on the very first Thursday night of the table this year. Uh, we were here on this stage, it was first night here, and so it's kind of fitting that it's first night back, and that is, I was teaching this, uh, I was kind of teaching through uh, a section in Luke there, and I know, like, probably none of you remember this, probably most of you didn't even notice that it happened when it happened, but it, it has, like, haunted me ever since. And so I have been so wanting to be able to, to make things right. We were teaching through Luke 5. I don't know how many of you guys were here, how many of you guys remember, but I'm going to give you just a quick refresher. Luke 5 is where uh, Jesus calls Peter to be his disciple and calls him to then be a fisher of men, to go and, and make more disciples. And, and in this story, the summary of it basically is this, that uh, Peter and his crew have been out fishing all night and they've had no success. They've caught nothing. And so they're coming in in the morning to clean their nets. They're tired, they're weary, and as they approach the shore, there's this man named Jesus that they know of but don't really know very much yet. And so uh, they're approaching, and he's teaching, and these crowds are gathering in around him. And so he needs space because people are like right up here. And so he asks Peter, would you mind if I step into your boat and, and teach from there? And so Peter's like, fine, you know. And, and so he gets up and he teaches there. And then after he's done, he says to Peter, now I want you to push out, and I want you to throw the net in. And, and go for a catch. And, and Peter's like, listen, Jesus, like we've been doing this all night. They're not biting. It's not working tonight. Uh, it's, it's not worth it. But, but since you say so, I'll give it a try. And so he goes out and they throw the net out. And all of a sudden, this giant school of fish just fills the net, so much so that they're starting to like break as they scoop them in. And then they scoop them into the net, uh, into the boat, and, and it's full to the point of almost capsizing. And in this moment, Peter realizes to some degree who this Jesus is. Not, not fully, but he knows that he's more than just your average man. And he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, Lord, get away from me for I am a sinful man. Like, I don't deserve to be in your presence. And, and, and then Jesus kind of lifts him up and, and calls him to be his follower. But there's this interesting thing that Luke does there in chapter 5, and that is that he, well, first of all, he calls Peter Simon the whole way through because Simon was his name. Jesus changes his name to Peter later, but he hasn't done that yet. Uh, Peter means rock, and Jesus is kind of giving him a new identity. He just calls him Simon all the way through, except for this one point. There is one verse in Luke 5 where Luke switches and calls him Simon Peter, and then he switches back and he calls him Simon again. So it's weird that Luke does this, that he calls him Simon Peter in one place. It's also weird because that's not his name yet, because Jesus hasn't called him that yet. And so I asked this question, first half of the session we were teaching, I said, why does, Jesus, or why does Luke do that? Why does Luke call him Simon Peter in this one moment and nowhere else? And then I said, we're going to answer that question right after this, after this break. And then we did our break and we got back together and I taught the whole second session and I never answered the question. 
And I got down and I didn't even realize it. Like I literally, I taught all the way through. It wasn't until like five or 10 minutes afterwards, I was like standing in the back and I was like, oh shoot. And so like, it is like, and again, I, I bet most of you didn't even realize it happened. Probably you're like, I wasn't paying attention anyway. I had my pillow in the back there with, um, so, but, but it is like, it has messed with me. And I, t- I, I, I wondered if anybody caught it. I said to Alec afterwards, like, I was like, I never answered that question now. Cause like, oh, I know you didn't answer that question. <laughs> so at least, at least one person caught it. So tonight I get to answer the question. It's in Luke chapter five, verse eight. And the one time when Luke decides not to call him Simon, but to call him Simon Peter, is when Peter looks down at the fish, and then he looks up at Jesus, and then he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, get away from me, Lord. He calls him Simon Peter, and then he goes back to call him Simon. And why does Luke do that? I, I can't prove this. I don't know this for sure. But I think my hunch is that Luke is demonstrating that when Simon gets a glimpse of who Jesus really is, when Simon turns his focus towards Jesus, his identity begins to change. He begins to become a new kind of person. And the proposal at the beginning of the year that I wanted to make but never made was that that can be you too. That when when you are able to turn your eyes to Jesus and see him for who he is, that that change can take place in you. That's actually a little bit of what we're going to be exploring tonight, what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to be new people who live new kinds of lives now because of Jesus. If you're new, if this is your first time, what we've been doing all year long is walking through, basically we've been looking at Jesus through the eyes of one of his closest friends, and that is this man Peter, Simon Peter. And we've been looking at stories of his, and we looked at his first letter that he wrote, 1 Peter. And a few weeks ago, we looked at John 21, which is one of the last encounters that Peter had with Jesus on this earth uh, before Jesus ascended into heaven. And in that last encounter, Jesus made this kind of interesting statement, this prediction to Peter about his future. He says in John 21, verse 18, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. So Jesus makes this prediction to Peter that at some point he's going to have his arms stretched out just like Jesus did. And he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. And about three decades later, that happens. The best evidence we have is that that happens in the mid-60s under the reign of the Emperor Nero, that Peter is martyred during that time. But somewhere just shortly before that happens, shortly before he's killed, he sits down and he pens one last letter, writes one last document to send out to some churches. That letter is 2 Peter. And that's where we're going to spend the last four weeks of our time together is walking through this little book that Peter writes. In many ways, it is kind of a farewell speech of Peter's that he gets to write before he goes. He's writing, we think, from Rome. That's where he's going to be executed. He's writing from the city of Rome, and he's writing to a group of churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The same audience, actually, we think that he wrote 1 Peter to. Because he'll say midway through this letter, this is now my second letter I've written to you. So we're pretty sure first Peter was to them and the second Peter is also to them. Um, In the first uh, letter, he's writing them to 
warn them and to prepare them and to be able to encourage them in the, in, in the midst of outside attacks on the church. So there's persecution that they're facing. And so he talks to them about being able to suffer well and being able to trust entrust themselves to God even as they go through hard things. This letter, he's writing about internal attacks. That what's happening now is actually false teachers are beginning to spring up in the church and coming and sharing things that are not true. And, and though that seems way less scary than physical persecution, Peter knows that's far more dangerous. That has far more ability to dismantle the church than persecution does. And so he sees this, either it's already happening or he kind of knows he's catching wind and he knows it's going to happen shortly after he dies. He's starting to catch wind of different things popping up. And so he wants to get this letter off before he dies to warn people about it. We don't know everything that those teachers were teaching, but we can catch a few hints from the things Peter writes. We know, first of all, that they seem to be denying, in some sense, the lordship of Jesus. Seem to be denying his lordship or his divinity, in some sense. Secondly, we know that they are certainly denying, because Peter will come after this a lot, they are denying that Jesus will return one day to judge. They go, listen, you all thought he was coming. It's been three decades. He hasn't come back. So where is, this, where is this second coming that everyone's talking about? It's not happening. There will be no judgment. And that means for the third thing that they're teaching or that they're at least doing is they are twisting the freedom that Christianity offers, the freedom that the gospel offers, and they're using that as a license for sin. Because, I, you know, I, the, the, the Christian faith teaches grace. It teaches forgiveness. And, I mean, Jesus isn't going to judge anybody for what's actually happening. Therefore, we can live how we want. And they are. And, and from the things we see there, they're extorting money. They're, like, m- making themselves rich off the people they're trying to teach to, ripping them off, trying to make money off of them. They're sleeping around with people in the church They're doing some terrible things and all pretending like this is because of this greater knowledge, this greater understanding of theology that they actually have. And Peter, if you know Peter very well at all, he has never had a problem speaking what is on his mind. Sometimes that gets him into trouble and sometimes that leads to some pretty cool moments and he is going to have no problem telling us what he thinks of these people, especially in chapter 2. He'll be very, very blunt with his thoughts on them. But tonight we're going to be looking not at his attacks on those false teachers, but at his opening words, which comes with kind of a greeting and then a, a, a beginning charge to the people that he's writing to. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this, Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he opens up, first of all, you may have noticed, some of your translations may actually say Simon Peter. CSB, the one I just read, uh, reads Simeon Peter. And you may go, why is that? It's because those are basically two different versions of the same name. Uh, Simeon would be the transliteration of the Hebrew form of the name. And then Simon is just the Latinized or the Greek version of that same name. And so same difference. It's Simon Peter, though he writes as Simeon here. He calls himself a servant of Jesus and an apostle of Jesus. That word apostle in the Greek, apostolos, it just means one who is sent, one sent out. 
Um, and it kind of means like someone who is sent to represent someone else. And so there are a number of different apostles that you'll see in the New Testament, but there are 12 specific like who have like the formal title, like capital A apostle. And those are, those are the men who are not just representing a church, but they are representing Jesus himself. And Peter is one of those. That's what he's talking about. He is one of the 12. And yet he says, I am writing to people who have an equal standing before God as I have. I may be one of the 12. I may be Jewish, which is the first people that Jesus came to. And he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. And he says, but you have an equal standing before God with me because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross and he calls Jesus these words. These were, remember, this is one of his closest friends while he was here on the earth. But these are the words he uses to describe this friend. Our God and Savior. It's his name for Jesus. And he wants to make clear from the very beginning to these people who are hearing false teachers undermine the divinity or the lordship of Christ. No, no, the one I am talking to you about is our God, my God and your God and is our Savior, my Savior, and your Savior. And then he says, grace and peace to you. That's a common greeting in the New Testament. They're taking the word greetings, karen, in the Greek, and then the Christians, because everything in their life is built around this word, they switch karen to kares, Greece, or Greece, grace. They switch it to grace and peace. But then Peter adds something different here. He says, grace and peace, May that be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. A lot of times when you read the opening words of an epistle, it will give you a good idea of where this epistle is going, where this letter is going. And knowledge is going to play a key role. Watch how many times that word comes up just in these few verses. Multiple times it comes up. It, it will be a key factor in Peter's writing or a key theme. Um, here is where he moves on from here. He starts, honestly, with this breathtaking promise uh, as he, before he moves into his charge in verses 3 and 4. Peter says, His divine power, that's Jesus, Jesus' divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. So these, these couple of verses are some incredible truths, but there's a lot that he just said there. So let's take a minute and unpack it. He says in verse 3 um, that he has given us everything we need, everything required for life and godliness. And this is really key to be able to see. Actually, sorry, I just lost my place there. Okay, got it. Um, the idea that Peter is about to start from is this one, that we were made in the image of God, and therefore we are called to live up to that standard. The image of God means a, a few different things, but one of the things it means is that we were meant to reflect God and his nature and his character, his holiness, his love, his truth. His integrity ought to be seen in human beings who are made in his image. On the very first night, another thing we did is we brought a mirror up here. And we said, That's, this is what you are. And as you turn yourself to God, you begin to reflect him as you are meant to. The problem is that for every one of us, sin has entered into our lives, which means we are shattered mirrors. We are broken mirrors, twisted, and we are unable to reflect God as we were meant to. 
We cannot show forth his character. We do not have the ability or the capacity to do that. But Peter says, for those who are in Christ, we have a new power in us, Jesus's power to do that. We have a new ability to be able to reflect his image. He says in verse three, we have everything required for life and godliness. What does that mean? Everything required for life and godliness. Certainly, there are a few different like, resources that we can point to that God has given us. He's given us His Word as a crucial means of being able to know and follow Jesus and do what He wants. He's given us prayer so that we can come to Him and we can speak to Him and we can ask Him for help and to enable us. He's given us His people, the church, that we can lean into and that can walk alongside of us. And all of those things are critical for what it is to follow Jesus and to do those things well. But I think what Peter's talking about here is actually something deeper something greater and richer than that. And we're going to dive into that uh, later, a little bit more, uh, in just a bit. But he says this, that he gives us those things, here's this word again, through the knowledge of Jesus. That we get everything that we need through the knowledge of Jesus. Probably what he's referring to specifically here is the gospel. That he has given us everything required for life and godliness through the gospel. That is the power. But Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for everyone. That there is actual power in the declaration of these truths that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came and that he died to make us right with God, to take away our sins. And then he did not stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And in that proclamation, there is power to change people's lives. And when people begin to believe that, it changes them. And so that's probably what Peter's talking about. But it seems like I think more than just that first time you hear the gospel, that changes you. The New Testament talks like like the more you know Jesus, the more time you spend focusing on him, the more time you, you, you develop a relationship with him, the more transformation begins to take place in your life. This really interesting verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where it says that as we look on Jesus, we are slowly being transformed into that same glory that he has. We begin to reflect off the glory of Jesus the more we gaze upon him, the more we look on him, which actually sounds a fair amount like what Peter just said in verse 4. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through him you may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. And that's an interesting and strong statement um, that we share in or become participants in the divine nature. There's some people that that freaks out. There's some people that go, that sounds uh, new agey or pagan or something about that sounds weird. But, but Peter's not talking about uh, deification, the process of us becoming gods ourselves. And he's not talking about our personalities being like subsumed into the you know, eternal life essence that we may call God. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is this idea that we begin to share and we begin to uh, enjoy a fellowship and an empowerment that allows us to live out and display the glory of God. That what is happening in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this beautiful life-giving relationship and fellowship that I get in on that. Not as one of them, but I get to 
to be invited into and, and the power of them flows into my life to do something different, to finally live out what I was meant to live. It's the image restored. It's the broken mirror healed back into a new mirror because of what is happening in me through Jesus. And these promises that he gives in verses 3 and 4, these truths, you've got everything you need. You've got the ability, his power is giving you the ability to participate in the divine nature. Those are the foundation for the really strong encouragement that he's giving them in verses 5 through 9. Here's what he says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So Peter says, in light of what you've received, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith, to supplement your belief with, and then he goes into what we call a virtue list. And there are a number of different, uh, in the New Testament, virtue lists and vice lists. Uh, these, these descriptions of different characteristics that either we should be living out or that we should be avoiding. And you'll see them from time to time. And a lot of people try to dig in and try to figure out the significance of the order. Why does he say faith first, and then he says goodness, and then after goodness he goes into, why, why does he list all these things in this specific order? But by and large, when you see a virtue list or a vice list in the New Testament, most scholars will tell you there, there's really not much significance to the order of them, except for probably they say the first and, and many times the last uh, object in those lists. And so the, the first object in this list is faith, that you add to faith, my trust and belief in Jesus Christ is the foundation for all the character that will come from that. And then, of course, the last one is love, which shouldn't surprise us because that is the kind of crown jewel of the Christian faith. Everything that we are about is wrapped up in this fact that God loved us and sent his son Jesus to die for us, and therefore we love him and we love others. Jesus says that is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In between, he lists off these several different words in here. He says goodness, and by goodness, he doesn't just mean the absence of bad things, don't do bad things, but like the presence of the intentional acting out in, in a life of good deeds and good things. He says knowledge, which we've already talked about, knowing and discerning God and his will, self-control, which is somewhat self-explanatory. And he says add to self-control endurance. The Greek word there is uh, hupomone, which literally it's like two, it's a compound word. It's two words come together that mean remain under, the ability to remain under. So Peter says, whatever pressure comes down on you in life, May you be a person of endurance who can remain under that, who can hold up under it and hold strong to Jesus no matter what comes at you from the outside or from the inside, Peter says. And then on top of that, he adds uh, to, to add godliness to that, which is maturity, which is Christ-likeness. And then brotherly affection, which is a, a warm feeling of love and affections for the church. That to love Jesus means I love his people, that I love his church. And then he adds on to that love, which ought to, as we say, define all of my life. And he says, when you do these things, that it will keep you, what is his word there in eight? 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of God. So all of these things, Peter says, you ought to be adding onto your life in increasing measure. They ought to continue and continue. Never stop growing, which is actually a fairly good subtitle for this text. If you wanted to kind of sum it up in a few words, Peter's charge is never stop growing. Continue on in this all through. And if you do, it will keep this knowledge, which is a really good thing, knowing the gospel, knowing these truths about Jesus. But there's such thing as a knowledge that is unfruitful, that is useless, where you know lots of things about God, but you don't know him where you know lots of things about Jesus, but there's nothing in your life that reflects that. He says that the person who does not add these things, they have forgotten the cleansing from their past sins. Now, most of the time in the Bible, when you see that word forgotten, it doesn't mean like a mental faux pas where you actually like forget something or cannot remember something. Usually what's actually being described there is a failure to take seriously the truth that has changed you to take seriously and put into practical application something that has happened in you. So a person who is not living these things out, they may know that they were cleansed from their sins. They may know that Jesus died for them, but you look at their life, Peter says, and nothing about their life says they know that. It looks like they've just plain forgotten everything that Christ has done for them. Verses 10 and 11 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. So he closes by saying, first he says, you got the ability to do these things. You've been getting everything you need, therefore, do them. Start doing these things. And then he says, and if you do these things, it confirms your election and calling. By our actions, we confirm that we belong to God, that we are adopted as his children. And then verse 11, this is a strange verse. And there are people who aren't totally sure what to do with it. Verse 11, for in this way, entry into the kingdom. So in this way, that is, for by doing these things, by adding godliness and endurance and self-control to your life, by doing these things, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. And what, of course, sounds strange about this is it sounds like Peter is saying that you get into heaven by your works, by doing all of these things, which, of course, if you've been around here very long at all, you know, we talk about it all the time. That's not the way the Bible describes things. Christianity runs counter to every other world religion, every other system of faith, and that it's not what you do. It's what Jesus has done for you. We are saved by our faith in him. That's, that's what brings us and makes us right with God. So then how do we reconcile that truth with what Peter just said here? That by doing these things, you will find entry into the eternal kingdom. How do we reconcile those two ideas together? The answer comes actually in, in, a, in a few different places, but probably most clearly and most explicitly in the second half of James chapter 2. And we're not going to go there, but it would be worth your time to go just read the back half of James 2, where James will say that faith without works, this is his kind of, he makes all these statements about how faith and works are meant to go together, that they flow out of each other and interweave with each other. And then he finishes that chapter with this famous statement that faith without works is dead. 
And that is this, that there is no amount of works that can save me. There's nothing I can do. I cannot be good enough to fix myself with Jesus. Um, it is only by faith in him. But what James says is that the, uh, a faith that merely believes, a faith that uh, assents to everything but never obeys Jesus, a faith that results in no life change in me, is not faith. And so to expect to be saved by that kind of faith is a false hope. Real faith results in a change in heart and therefore a change in life in me. To just, to just believe these things but to not actually live anything out, out is not faith. That's just agreement. And no one is saved by agreeing with Jesus. We are saved by placing our faith and placing our trust in Him. Real faith produces works, produces growth in increasing measure. And yet, that's really hard. To do the things that Peter just told us to do and to keep doing that in increasing measure, to look more and more and more and more like Jesus is not easy. It's hard. Why is that? Why is it that even when we know the kind of life that we're supposed to live, even when the Bible holds it out real clear, we know what we ought to do and we may even want to do that, why do we struggle so much as Christians to do it? That's what we're going to talk about after the break, and I promise you I'm really going to answer that question. All right. Okay, before we, uh, before we jump in, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn, I want you to take 45 seconds, talk with someone next to you, answer this question. What is one thing that at some point in your life, like grade school, junior high, high school, that was like all the rage, that was like the coolest fashion trend that you thought was going to last forever, and has no longer existed, like went away. So real quick, what is that? One thing you thought would last forever. <laughs> All right, bring it in, bring it in. Okay. Listen, dude. <laughs> you guys got going on that one, man. That's that brought that brought some stuff up. Okay, okay. Somebody, let me. I want I want to hear a few of them. Somebody, Olivia, give me one. Silly bands. Silly bands. <laughs> okay, silly bands. That's great. Okay, somebody, Jonas. What? Elite socks. Okay, <laughs> don't even know what those things are. Okay, right back here. I can't see, but oh, what? Tory Burch flip-flops? I don't even know what those are. No clue what those are. Okay. Give me, uh, give, actually, I'll go to the back because I haven't gone to the back yet. Okay, right back here. Is that Adam? Okay. What? Shorts with tights. <laughs> okay. Good. Listen, you guys, you guys are old enough now to have seen trends come and go. Uh, when you're like a grade school kid, like you just think like when something happens and it's cool, you just think this will be cool forever. We'll all, all wear silly bands as an adult, um, right? We'll all be doing this. But, but like you don't realize those things come and go. You guys are old enough to have seen things come and go. I, on the other hand, am old enough to have seen things come and go and then come back again. 
Uh, things that I thought like were gone have come back around again. Uh, some of them I'm glad for, flannel. I was really glad when flannel came back uh, for a little bit. Some of them I'm not sure what I think about, like the, the flared bell-bottom jeans on the girls again. Those were huge when I was in high school. I'm not sure what I, if, I, if I'm you know, all in on that yet, but I probably won't be wearing them anytime soon, just so you know. Uh, but I had one of these moments just uh, last week, maybe it was two weeks ago, I had one of these moments where my daughter Alice, she is in seventh grade, and she got this package in the mail, and she was so excited about it, and I didn't know what it was. She just said, they're here, they're finally here, you know, and she runs over to the island, and she gets it, she opens up the package, and she pulls out this bag full of these things. I don't know how many of you guys can see what this is, right, but she pulls it out, and, I'm, and I look at that, and I go, how do you know what WWJD bracelets are? And she's like, she's like, Dad, everybody wears WWJD bracelets. They're like, they're the coolest thing. Like, even, she's like, even people who don't care what Jesus would do wear WWJD bracelets, <laughs> right? Like, that's like, she was all in. And I'm like, how do you, and, and I, I was completely kind of taken back because this, when I was a probably freshman, sophomore, junior year, there's a period of like two, maybe three years where these were huge. And everybody you saw had a WWJD bracelet, uh, often like my daughter does, one for each wrist, okay? Uh, two or three for each wrist all the time. And, and they were a huge deal. And, and, and everyone was wearing them. And I remember thinking like, this is it. This is a big deal. I went all in on these things. Uh, it came from, I don't know if you know this, any of you guys who've, who've worn any of these, it came from actually a book uh, called In His Steps. And it was written, I did, I did not know this, we read this in my youth group before we started wearing these things. Uh, it was published in 1896. So this really old book that was basically a, a fiction story, as a story about what would happen if this town, if this church began to ask this question before every decision they made in their life. What would Jesus do in this situation? And the idea in this town is that this, as this begins to take root, they commit a whole year to doing this, and it begins to spread through the church, and it begins to radically change the town as everyone else starts asking that. And so when I read that and then, and then started wearing these, I just thought, this is so cool. I am all in on this. And so I started wearing my WWJD bracelets everywhere, um, and I really do think that it is a great idea. I think that it's a really a cool thing to kind of ask that. What would Jesus do in this situation? But it didn't take long before I realized that this second question kept popping up. Uh, not just what would Jesus do, but how do I do what Jesus would do? It's like I needed my own, I needed to make another bracelet and an H-D-I-D-W-J-D-W, something like that, like that. So I, but I just figured it probably wouldn't work. It'd be too many initials, but uh, this idea, what, how do I actually live this out? Because the truth is you start asking that question, what would Jesus do? Most of the time, it's not that hard to answer. There's some moments where it gets a little bit where you really do struggle to figure out, I don't know what he would do in this situation. But most of the time, we know what Jesus would do. When confronted with like a hateful attitude or hateful words, Jesus would respond with love. When given the opportunity to objectify somebody through pornography or lust in any sort of form or means, Jesus would refuse. He would reject that. If someone wronged Jesus and came to him asking for forgiveness, Jesus would forgive. We know. I, I know the answer to that question, and I was able to answer that over and over again. It's the second question that I struggle to figure out. How do I do it? Because I know the right thing. 
almost all the time I know the right thing, but I fail to do it. Have you been there? You know what that's like? You, you say that you're not going to uh, take part in gossip. You're, you're done kind of talking about people behind their back. It never goes well. You always feel terrible. And so you say you're not going to do it. And then you end up with like just the, the right mixture of people. And all of a sudden it just starts happening again. And you feel bad even while you're doing it. But you do it anyway. You say you're not going to give in to that sexual sin, whether that's with a screen in front of you or with another human being, and you swear, and every time you do it, you, you, you feel so guilty. You feel like you can't even like face God, and you go to bed uh, just feeling ashamed. You swear that's the last time, and then you go back and you do it again. You tell yourself that you're going to forgive this person who's wronged you, and you try, but for whatever reason, you just can't bring it uh, out of yourself. You, you, you want to speak up whenever somebody's doing something that's wrong and you know it, but you can't bring yourself to do it. You're too much of a people pleaser. Why is it that so many of us struggle with this? And it's not just you. It's not just me. So many people in the church, so many Christians have found it hard to do it. Why is it that so many followers of Jesus find it so hard to follow Jesus? There's probably a number of things, probably a number of reasons a person could give to that, but I think that there are two key reasons that we see in this text that we just read through tonight. And I just want to take a look back at, at two verses specifically in this. And I think the first reason why many of us struggle to continue growing, to move towards Christ's likeness, to give up our sin, to grow in godliness, is because we do not believe the truth of verse 3. That is, we do not believe what Peter says, that Jesus' divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. I mentioned earlier that when Peter says those words, he's talking about something deeper than just prayer and Bible and, and the church, even though those are vital and critical things. What Peter's talking about, and in verse 4 he goes on to talk about these promises that we've received that help us to do this. He's talking about a promise that was made five to six hundred years before Peter wrote these letters. Five to six hundred years and a promise that people had waited to come through to fruition for many, many years and it did not come to fruition fully until Peter's lifetime. He's talking about this thing that was so huge, this little thing that if you just, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you might blink and miss it and not even pay attention to how vital this thing is. But it's this promise delivered through the prophet Ezekiel. And it's not going to be on the screen. And so I'm just going to read it. You can go there if you want your Bible, but at least make sure if you're taking notes, write these verses down. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. Because this is a beautiful promise that was made, as I said, some five, six hundred years before Jesus. It's written to God's people who over and over and over again turn their back on God. Over and over and over again rebelled. Over and over and over again had no ability to fix themselves and to right the ship. To be able to change the way they were acting and the way they thought and felt inside. And so the prophet Ezekiel gives them this promise. God gives them this promise through the prophet Ezekiel that one day things will be different. He says in verse 25, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So there's this promise that one day this heart of stone, this brokenness inside of us would all be made new and that we would receive God's own spirit inside of us, enabling us to do what we were always meant to do. And then five, six hundred years later, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that became possible. Because finally, when we were cleansed from our sins, our, our bodies, our persons became like a fitting temple for God himself. And so God himself, through the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells in us. And Paul will describe the life-changing power of this Spirit in Romans 8. That's another chapter that's worth reading. Romans 8, where he says that if you are a Christian, if you have believed the gospel and placed your faith in Jesus, he says, catch this, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now present in you. That the same life-giving power that brought the resurrection that changed all of history dwells in you now through the Holy Spirit, which is just mind-blowing. That's how we partake in the divine nature, because the divine nature comes into us. God himself through his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And that doesn't just like help my abilities. It makes me a new kind of person with a new heart who is no longer enslaved to sin. Now this one I'm going to read to you. This one is on the text and it's worth following. I said last week Isaiah 40 is probably a top 10 chapter for me. Romans 6 would also be on that list. Let me read Romans 6 verses 6 through 11 to you. when I get to it. Says this, For we know that our old self, that is the old sinful, broken, twisted version of me that was always oriented on me and what I wanted and always doing what I wanted to do, even if I knew it was destructive to me, that person, that old self, was crucified with Jesus so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives to God, or but the life he lives, he lives to God. And catch this, so you too, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That word consider is actually probably not best translated consider. It's like an accounting term. Some actually translations translate it, count yourself dead to sin. It's, it's kind of a logical type thing. What Paul seems to be saying is, do the math. Look at it. If this is true of Jesus, if death and sin has no hold on him and you have been identified with him and you have been connected to him through baptism and through your faith in him, death and sin has no hold on you anymore. You're not enslaved to it. Do the math and look at it and figure these things out. Did you know that that was true? Because I think that many Christians don't. Many Christians have no idea that they are no longer enslaved to sin. Many of them think that they will always be enslaved to sin, that it will always own them, that, they'll, that they are doomed to repeat the same patterns over and over again. Andrew Wilson uh, is a British pastor and writer 
uh, riding from the London area. And, and he tells this story about one time he was out riding through the British countryside with a friend of his in this tiny little car. And they were going on these dirt roads. And as they're going down this small little dirt road, they stop because this boy is walking across the road. And, and as he's walking on the, across the road, at first he just sees the boy because there's a, and there's a rope in his hand. And as they get closer and as the boy keeps walking further across, he sees attached to this rope is the uh, largest bull Andrew Wilson has ever seen in his life. This just massive creature. He said it dwarfed the car that we were sitting in. And, and as he's watching this boy walk across, this like eight-year-old kid walking across, pulling this giant bull, he just starts freaking out. Like, I'm about to watch like a, a, an animal just massacre a little kid in front of me, right, right here as, as he's trying to pull this bull around. Like there's nothing we're going to be able to do to stop it. He's going to kill us too. He's going to just smash this whole car. What are we going to do? And he said something like that to his friend. Like, I mean, any, at any moment, this thing could go crazy. And his friend, who was from the area, told him, no, no, no. It doesn't work that way, actually. You see, that bull, from the time it was little, from the time it was a, a calf, like they, they put that ring through its nose and they tied a rope to it. And, and so that bull, all it's ever known is that it is controlled by that ring through its nose. And it was just so used to it growing up, so used to it when it was too small and too weak to resist, that it's just grown to believe that that's true its whole life. And so now that little eight-year-old boy has complete power over that bull to take it wherever it wants to go. It does not know that it has the power within it to break free of that rope, to break free of his grip. I think that that describes a lot of Christians that so many of us tend to believe that sin has an unbreakable power over us, that porn is an addiction that you're just going to have to feed and feel guilty about it and hate it, but that's what it will be, that you'll never be able to forgive that person who wronged you, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you'll always feel this bitterness inside of you, that you're always going to care too much what other people think, and it's going to cause you to act in ways that you shouldn't act sometimes, but it's just part of your personality. It's part of your brokenness, that you'll never be able to speak up when you know you ought to speak up. Listen. If you are a Christian, none of that is true. None of that is true of you anymore. There's no such thing as a sin that enslaves and controls you, a sin that you cannot break free of. And it's not because there's anything special in you. It's because there's something special, supernatural, divine inside of you, and that is God himself, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, setting you free from those things. That doesn't mean, though, that there's no effort required on your part. When we have given ourselves to something over and over and over again, when we give ourselves over to a particular sin or a particular idol for years and years and years, when we've run back to the same idols, when, we, when we've gone to those things over and over, it's going to take effort and intentionality to be able to break that pattern in your life. It's not just going to happen like this. And this leads us, I think, to the second reason that many Christians struggle in their sin, struggle to overcome and struggle to grow. Reason number two is that we do not obey the command of verse five. Peter says there, make every effort. Make every every effort to grow up in Christ. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and perseverance and self-control and brotherly affection and knowledge and all of these things. Make every effort. And many do not do that. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, is, is a pastor from the 70s. He died in like 70-something, 80-something. And he describes the Christian life basically as a farm. Uh, that the Christian life is like this farm in which I have been given everything necessary to produce crops, to produce fruit in my life. I have been given a farm by God to be able to do those things. I've been given all the equipment necessary. I've been given the seeds. I've been given the water supply. I've been given everything. And, and so it's not up to me to come up with the resources and the power to be able to farm these things. The only thing that is up to me is whether or not I'm going to farm whether or not I'm going to take the things that have been given to me, the seed that God has given to me, and whether I'm going to sow, whether I'm going to use the equipment that he's given to me, and whether I'm going to plow the field, whether I'm going to water the things that are there. That is our job, is to farm. We've got everything we need. The question is, will we use it? And this will require effort on our parts, and the Bible is clear about this. The same writers, and it's not just Paul, it's not just, like, throughout the New Testament, you'll see these statements that, like, sin does not have hold on us anymore, that we've got everything we need for godliness, all these kinds of things. But those same writers will also say that it's going to be work. They're going to say things like, you need to put your sin to death. They'll say things like, you need to flee sexual immorality. They'll say things like you need to fight temptation. Jesus will say if your, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. In other words, he's saying take extreme measures. Do whatever it takes to not be held down by your sin. Or like Peter says, make every effort to overcome these things. Make every effort. No one drifts towards godliness. No one accidentally becomes Christ-like because you have an enemy that is constantly trying to pull you away from Jesus. And you live in a world that is constantly trying to pull you away from Jesus. It will take intentionality on your part. You want to be free from sin? You want to be free from the things that dog you over and over again? It's going to take a devoted prayer life. Not just like a one-off, God, please help me. I know I shouldn't do this. I don't want to do this. But like, prayer, coming to Him, relying on Him, and depending on Him. It's going to take setting your mind on the things of God, less time looking at screens and more time in His Word and fixing your eyes on Him. It's going to take probably confession, like opening up and confessing to a brother or sister some of the sin that is plaguing your life. And it's going to take accountability someone asking you about those things. It may take drastic measures like removing computers from your apartment or from your house and only doing homework at like a library or in a public place. It might mean breaking up with that boy or with that girl. It might mean putting filters on your phone or on your computer or on your internet. And the truth is, if they're honest, a lot of people just don't want to do that. I mean, they want to be free of sin. They want to do good things. They want to grow, but they're not really ready to go to all that trouble. Or there are some who I believe if they were completely honest, aren't really sure they want to let go of their sin. That if they're being real, they kind of like it. And they might sometimes kind of feel bad, but, but truthfully, it's, it's kind of a nice little like almost kind of comforting pet to come back to over and over again. They don't want to stop because they've got kind of a good thing going. I said a prayer at camp 
when I was like sixth grade, which means now I'm saved and now I'm going to heaven. And because of his grace, I can kind of live however I want to live. And so I get the best of both worlds. I get to have my cake and eat it too. I get to have both of these things together. There are a lot of people who are content because, well, I'm saved now. And that will be enough. And listen, I know that there are probably, you know, things, there's, I can live how I want as long as it's not too bad. But even when I do things, yes, there are some things I shouldn't do, but God will forgive, right? That's what he does. He's a God of grace. He, it's not about my works. It's about faith. But yes, the Bible tells us, yes, it's about faith. But that kind of faith is not real faith. It's just an agreement. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, he died for my sins. Yes, he rose again. But it's not placing my faith in him. And I'm just going to say tonight, if that's you, if you look at your life and you find that the truth is there is not much desire in you to, to change or to repent, I plead with you. I plead with you that you would do just that tonight, that you would repent. I plead with you that you would be willing to reconsider and you would be willing to have a, a real life-changing faith in Jesus. One last thought from verse 5 before we close out. If a person were to ask this question, why? Why should I go to all this effort to change? Why should I work so hard to put away these things that have been so near and dear to me for so long? There's a lot of different answers that the Bible gives to that question. There's a lot of different ways that could be answered. Uh, the Bible would say things like, because God is worthy of it, first of all, and that, that alone is enough, because he is holy and because he has created you and he deserves that kind of life from you. The Bible would say because Jesus himself loved you enough to purchase you with his own blood. So now you are doubly his. He made you and then he bought you back. And so you belong to him. The Bible would say uh, because that is how we express gratitude. The Bible would say because when you live that life, it is destructive to yourself and everyone else around them. There's a lot of different ways that you can answer that question. Why should we live like this? But I'm really intrigued by the way Peter answers that question in our text here. Did you catch how verse 5 actually starts? He says there, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. What is this very reason? The very reason he's talking about is verses 3 and 5. Because God has given you everything you need for a life of godliness. Because you are now able to participate in the divine nature. For that very reason, make every effort to grow and to follow Jesus. In other words, if you were to ask Peter, why should I live this new kind of life? His answer is this, because you can. And that's enough. If an eagle were to ask, why should I fly? Why should I put all that effort into flying and getting up there in the sky? The answer is because you can. Because you were made to do that. Why wouldn't you do that? Why would you spend your life confined to the earth if you've been given the ability, if you were made to fly? And the same question could be asked of us. If I've been made to follow Jesus, if I've been made to reflect God and his character, if, if I was created for that, and then Jesus came and died to make that possible for me, why would I not? Why would I not want to do those things I am able to now? So do not be content to sit in your sin. Do not be passive or lazy 
in following Jesus. Do not forget how he cleansed you from your sins. He died to give you a new life. He died to give you a divine power. And that divine power has everything required for you to grow up. Everything required for you to increase in measure in all the attributes of Christ's likeness. If you have never placed your faith in him, that's available for you. You give your life to Jesus, you get his Holy Spirit in return, and the ability to live the life you were made for becomes yours. If you've been purposefully playing games with God because you said a prayer, because you got baptized, and now you've been acting like you can live any way you want, repent, change your mind, turn back to the one who died for you and saved you. And no matter who you are tonight, whatever it takes, my prayer, my pleading with you and with myself is this, make every effort to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father in heaven, I am so grateful for these very real promises. You have given us everything we need. Uh, you allow us to, to, to be participants in the divine nature in, in a way that I don't even know how to fully get my mind around. But I am so grateful for it, and yet I, I take it for granted, and I don't always live that out. Often, you know, there's no hiding from you. And I know that that's got to be true of a lot of my brothers and sisters in here tonight. And I pray this, O oh Lord, that you would make real to them the promises of this text. That you would help them to see and grasp and believe the truths of this text. And I pray that you would put in us a burning desire to follow Jesus. That you would put in us a deep conviction of sin and a deep love for you and a deep desire to make every effort towards growing up in him. May you, by your Holy Spirit at work in us, do that tonight. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.